Welcome to the People Powered Business Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Lee Billett. If you employ staff, engage contractors, or rely on people to help deliver your products or services, you're in the right place. Join us each week as we dive in to uncover what makes people tick, learn the best strategies and tactics to build an amazing team, and most importantly, discover how you, the business owner or leader, can unleash the power of your people to help create the successful business you deserve. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 200 of the People Powered Business Podcast. So excited to have you here on this special live stream episode of the podcast. So welcome to this special live stream episode of the podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Um, To those who are listening to the podcast recording and are slightly confused what I'm talking about, for our special 200th episode of the podcast, we are live streaming this episode live on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and we have invited participants to ask questions for me to answer on this special episode of the podcast. Um, So if you're listening to the recording of the podcast on your usual podcast listening platform, that is why I'm referring to this live stream. For those who are joining us live, welcome. It is great to have you here. um, And thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for those that have pre-submitted questions for today's live stream. We've got some awesome questions that have been submitted. Um, So thank you for those who have submitted questions. Now, I firstly just want to get some housekeeping out of the way whilst we are here live. I'm using a program called StreamYard to stream to you live on all of those locations. Now, if you're on Facebook, StreamYard may ask for permission to use your name and your details when you post a comment uh, into the chat. And please go ahead and use the chat function. We are absolutely using that throughout today's episode. Um, So StreamYard may ask for permission to use your name. That just means that I'll actually be able to see who's asking a question or who's making a comment and joining in the conversation um, rather than just Facebook user, which is what I will otherwise see. So please feel free to jump into chat, add your comments, join in the conversation. If you have a question that you would like me to answer in today's Ask Me Anything special episode, please go ahead and pop that into chat. I have got questions, as I said, pre-submitted, which I'm very ready to answer. But if you're live and you want to ask a question, go ahead and pop it into chat because I would love to know uh, what your questions are, how I can support you. Or if you're a regular listener of the podcast, I would love to know your favourite episode or your favourite topic that we discuss on the podcast um, so we know uh, what your favourite episodes have been. In fact, that is one of the questions that I've been asked today, so I will be having a chat about that also. So go ahead and use chat, throw in your questions. I would love to be able to answer as many questions that that we have time for today. So I'll be ready to answer as many questions, as I said, as we have time for. But I also wanted to let you know that because of the amazing response that we've had with the questions that we've had submitted for today's special Ask Me Anything episode, um, we have decided, or I have decided, that we're going to do Ask Me Anything episodes on a semi-regular basis. They won't be live streams like this one, but as part of the podcast for 2024, we will be doing some special Ask Me Anything episodes where I will answer a listener's question. So if we don't get to your question today, don't worry, it will feature in an upcoming episode of the podcast. Okay, so firstly, let's kick into some questions that have been pre-submitted. Um, but again, if you're watching live, please feel free to um, to add your questions. So the first question I have has come from the wonderful Yvonne Shepherd from Women's Fitness Adventures, who I had the privilege of talking to just this morning. Um, and she has submitted what I think is a great question and a question I think a lot of other small businesses um, will be asking um, themselves, which is how 
she's asking really what makes a company, in particular a small business, an awesome place to work? And she references the fact that big companies like Google might have games and free food and lots of perks and big salaries and sometimes a good culture. But what actually makes a business, especially a small business that probably doesn't have the budget or the resources for those kind of perks, a great place to work? And it's such a good question. I do get asked things around this quite a bit, actually, because I think as small businesses, we can tend to have a little bit of almost imposter syndrome with relation to how can we compete with the big guys? And so I guess I wanted to share with you firstly that just because the big businesses have lots of those facilities and resources does not necessarily mean that they are always great places to work. When I was early on actually in my career as a recruiter in the late 90s, I worked with some very large organisations as their recruitment partner. Now, I'm not going to name the particular organisation that I'm referring to, but Suffice to say, it is a household name in the tech space, very large, very, very large global organisation. And I was their head recruitment partner for their head office team in Sydney. I can share with you that they had an amazing cafeteria. They had stunning offices in, you know, surrounded by lush tropical gardens, all of the environment and perks that you would expect a very large organisation of this size to have. What I can also share with you, though, is that it was not uh, everyone's favourite place to work. Michelle, hello, great to see you here and thank you. Um, in fact, they struggled to keep people in that business. They had quite a high turnover and a lot of the people that did stay stayed because they thought working at this particular organisation would look good on their resume. So in spite of having all the money, all the resources, all the beautiful offices, those things actually might help to attract people in the beginning, but they don't necessarily make it a great place to work. So if you're one of these small businesses that's concerned you can't possibly compete, what I'm going to share with you is that that actually isn't what makes somewhere a good place to work. So I think there are a few elements that do make somewhere a good place to work, though, and I think that they're all things that we as small businesses can actually focus on, which is great. So the first and most important thing is quality leadership in a business. And if you're the business owner, that obviously starts with you, but you might also be a leader in, in another organisation and that's really important as well. People work for people, not for businesses. So if you've got a leadership gap in your organisation, then that absolutely is going to cause problems when it comes to creating a great place to work. So first and foremost, you've got to have really strong leadership in the business for it to be a great place to work. That is the essential non-negotiable ingredient of a great place to work. The second thing that I think really makes it a, the right place to work for any particular employee is having values alignment. And I know, Yvonne, this is something you do very well in your business, is you're very conscious about anyone that joins your team having a really strong alignment to your values and what your business stands for. Um, and for those who don't know Yvonne, she runs women's fitness adventures and she takes uh, ladies on all sorts of amazing adventures overseas, teaching them how to hike and be fit and look after themselves in a really great community environment. So the values alignment needs to be extraordinarily strong for any business. Um, and I know, everyone, this is something that you already do very consciously. So hiring people into your business that are aligned with your values and ensuring that the 
people that join your team share the same values. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but they have to share similar or aligned values for, um, for it to be a great fit. And that's what creates a great place to work. People are always looking for a sense of belonging and purpose. And that doesn't matter whether you're making widgets or whether you're solving the world peace crisis. It doesn't matter what you do in your business. People want a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, to feel like they're part of a tribe. So creating that kind of environment absolutely makes something a great place to work. And, of course, having a great culture. Now, culture is something that is challenging to define sometimes and a little tricky to articulate but I really like Simon Sinek's uh, framework on this which is simply values plus behaviors equals culture. Culture is created by having very clear values and behaving in ways at all levels of the organization in every interaction that are aligned with those values. That is what creates culture. Now, I think of a particular example of a business that I've previously worked with who worked very hard on creating very clear values, but unfortunately the behaviours exhibited by the leaders in the workplace and, and then a flow-on effect others in the workplace really didn't align with those values. So the culture never stuck. The team members always felt like the business wasn't being true to its values or its culture because the leaders would say one thing and expect and do another. They would say that they were people-centric and look after their people, but would complain if people weren't at work 10 hours a day. That's not looking after your people. So that alignment is really important, and that's how you create culture at the foundation level. I think any great place to work has to have a culture that is underpinned by trust. We need to trust our leaders. Our leaders need to trust their teams. The teams need to trust each other. So trust is really important. And a key foundation is great communication channels. And that can look different depending on your business, how you communicate, uh, having very clear communication channels. Everyone knows how to communicate with each other. Really important. I think they are the core elements that actually make somewhere a great place to work. It's not about food, although some businesses love to celebrate with food. It's not about, um, you know, the bells and the whistles and the games rooms and the bean bags and all of those kind of things. It's much more about those foundational pieces. Yeah, and Michelle's got a really great point here for you, Mon. Good orientation and ongoing support are essential. Onboarding, it's a critical factor for sure. Sometimes hard to do uh, in a small business, but really, really important for sure. Some of the other things that I wanted to mention as well uh, in terms of the nuts and bolts of an employment relationship, flexibility, it's a non-negotiable. It used to be that you could put that you're a flexible workplace on your advertisements and that stood you aside from the crowd and attracted people. Flexibility is an expected requirement of every candidate coming into your business these days. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the employees run the show by any means. You do have boundaries and parameters and expectations, but flexibility is an expectation. It's important with working with your business and being part of your team is not at odds with the employee's well-being and own sense of self. There's a lot of focus on employee well-being programs being essential and looking after our people. And of course, we do need to look after our people, but I don't think it's so much about having programs and uh, you know, gym activities or any of that kind of thing in place. So I think it's more about creating environments that aren't at odds with our employees' own well-being. I also think a couple of other key fundamentals are paying people properly, you know, paying the market rate for the work that they're doing and the value they're bringing to your organisation. 
And ongoing training and development, I actually think, is really important. And I think as small businesses, we sometimes forget to invest in that or we get worried about over-investing, which is a risk as well. But if you look at it as a percentage of total salary and you take something like 1% to 2% of the total output of salary that you have in your business and you uh, allocate that to training and development activities, that will give you a really good sort of benchmark guide and will ensure that you're investing in your people uh, at the right level with training and development. Because some people love learning. Most employees do want to learn at work uh, and there's a significant gap between the, the volume of employees who want to work and, sorry, who want to learn at work and our um, investment in training and development as employers. So, Yvonne, I hope that helps and thank you for such a great question because I do think that, um, you know, a lot of small businesses have this fear that they can't compete with the big players in the market and it's simply not the case. In fact, I think small businesses are positioned really well to navigate and change and change tact when they need to to meet the market and to actually attract people. I firmly believe that most employees would generally prefer to work for small businesses rather than large organisations because they can get that sense of belonging. They can feel like they're contributing at a much higher level in a small business. They don't feel like they're just a number. So I actually think we're in a really unique position to attract the best talent if we can get those foundational pieces right. So thank you for that question, Yvonne, and I hope you've enjoyed that answer. Now, for those that are, who are here live, if you have a question that you would like to ask, please go ahead and pop it into chat. Or if you want to contribute to the conversation uh, like Michelle's been doing, please do that. Um, that would be really, really great. Now, the next question actually came in from an anonymous uh, listener. This person is new to the podcast and has asked what episodes or what's been the most popular episodes so they can determine what episodes to go back and have a listen to, which I think is a really great question, actually. To be honest, I had to go and look at the stats because I, I, I have my favourite episodes of the podcast, but I wanted to share with you the ones that have been most downloaded because they have obviously resonated with other listeners of the podcast as well. And really interestingly, when I went back and looked at this, these are episodes that um, contain some very practical frameworks or strategies. And a lot of these episodes centre around hiring and recruitment, which is really interesting because it's only one part of what we talk about on the podcast. So one of the most listened to episodes of the podcast is episode number 130, which is the five-step framework to screening resumes in a competitive market. Now, Episode 11 is a very similar episode where I share my strategies for screening resumes like a ninja. And it's it's a very practical strategy. And actually, I'm going to share a little bit more about it to answer one of the other questions we've got coming up because it uh, really helps you cull through resumes with a very sensible um, head on your shoulders. So that's a great episode. One of the other most popular episodes is one of our special guest episodes where I chatted to Charissa Lim from Impact Persona. I have a great relationship with Charissa. Um, she produces some exceptional DISC reports, and I love to do DISC assessments with my Power Boss coaching clients um, as part of our strategy. Um, and I interviewed Charissa on the podcast around using psychometrics in the recruitment process. And that was episode number 128. And she said she shared some amazing insights into how we can effectively use psychometrics in the recruitment process. Um, for those of you who don't know, I am from a psych background, I studied psychology, and so I have a particularly vested interest in that space. So that was a really enjoyable conversation and has been one of the most listened to episodes. 
Another one that is less on the recruitment front that has been very popular is three reasons your employee's motivation might be MIA or missing in action. That was episode 125. Um, and we really have talked a lot about motivation actually on the podcast, different types of motivation, how to get motivation back in our employees, because it's such a critical piece. And I think we went through a particular phase um, about 12 months or so ago where motivation was on the wane with a lot of our team. So that was a great episode. Uh, Two more popular episodes were Engaging a Recruiter, What You Need to Know First, episode 124. Um, As someone who previously owned a recruitment agency, I have some particular insights into how recruiters work and definitely what you want to be sussing out there. Um, And another great episode that was also highly listened to was Competing with Sign-On Bonuses and Other Hiring Tactics, which was episode 126. Now, Um, that episode, I think, really hit home at that point in the market where no one across the board in any industry or any location could find quality staff to save themselves. And we saw this wave of employers throwing money at people as a sign-on bonus and doing all sorts of random things to try and secure staff. And it was very competitive and a very challenging time in the market. So um, that was certainly a listen-to episode. The other episodes that have proven to be really popular are our power play episodes of the podcast. And these are our shorter episodes, which um, we started to feature throughout 2023, which are really targeted to help you master the mental game of being a boss. So those episodes um, are a shorter episodes. They don't release weekly. They're a little more ad hoc, but it's usually where I'm sharing one particular insight or piece of advice when it comes to mastering the mental game of being a boss. So I hope those episodes are a great resource for you to refer back to, but of course there are 199 episodes. That doesn't actually include the Power Play episodes. There's actually a lot more than that um, for you to go back and listen to and are available on the back catalogue when you have a moment. Dr. Massey, it's great to have you here. Um, I'm going to answer that question for you in just a moment. Thank you for asking that. I will come to that in just a moment. All right, our next question comes in from the wonderful, fabulous Susie Daphne, CEO at Her Business. Uh, Susie is one of my long-term business mentors and I love being part of her her business community. I've been a member of that um, organization for almost as long as I've been in business, I think, and it is um, one of my favorite places to hang out and spend time with other business owners. Susie's question is great. She would love to know what I feel is the biggest mistake that small business owners make when it comes to hiring new team members. I have to say, Susie, I did struggle to boil this down (laughs) to one specific mistake. But here's what it comes down to. The biggest mistake that small business owners make when it comes to hiring is that they hire the wrong person and then fail to course correct quickly when they make that realisation. But there are a whole range of reasons underpinning why they make that hiring mistake to begin with. And and that's what I thought I'd really unpack for you. I think fundamentally over and over again when I'm talking with business owners about how they go about hiring and their recruitment process, the small business owners I work with are lovely people and they want to see the best in and the good in everyone that they're talking to. And that includes candidates that they're assessing for a role with them. And in their efforts to see the best in people, they aren't necessarily sceptical or cynical or analytical enough within the recruitment process 
And that means that they fail to see potential red flags, warning signs, pitfalls, skills gaps, or values misalignment that really causes it to be a recruitment disaster. So that can underpin a lot of the reasons we do make hiring mistakes. Now, with every great hiring decision, we've got three key ingredients. You have to have the right role combined with the right person and be hiring at the right time. If any one of those three are not aligned together, you will have a hiring mistake on your hands and that is where we have problems. So the most, I guess, popular problem I see is the right role and right person disconnect. Right timing, less of an issue, although it can become a problem for sure, and I have seen that cause problems for employers, but it's the right role and right person mismatch. And most often it comes from, or the problem stems from, a lack of clarity. So we are not clear when we go into our recruitment campaigns about exactly what role we need to hire for. And Susie knows this, I am constantly referring people to go ahead and complete an activity that I call the clean slate exercise to help you map out actually what role you need in your business. Now, if you haven't heard of that term before, head back to episode 22 of the podcast where I do a whole episode on how to do the clean slate exercise. It's an activity that I teach with our people-powered HR members and with our coaching clients. And it really is a powerful activity to do in your business at least once a year but I would say every time you go to hire to ensure that you've got complete clarity about what you actually need in this role. Because the thing is, as busy business owners with all the plates spinning, often we just keep moving through the motions and think, well, because this person's resigned, I need to go and hire this person as a complete replacement. But sometimes the role has changed. Things have changed. Technology has changed. What we need in our business has changed. And then we end up hiring for the wrong role. So having complete clarity about the exact role we need to hire for then informs us what the right person needs to look like for that role. If we get clarity around that at the outset and then we go to market very clearly, very laser focused and tunnel visioned looking for that person, we are much more likely to find that person than if we go to the market without clarity because then we end up looking at all the things and People that might be a great fit for our organisation but aren't necessarily the right person for this right role. So I think it really always comes back to clarity and having complete clarity around the exact right role that we need right now. If we get that piece right, then our chances of going to the market, targeting the right person, looking for the right person, ultimately finding the right person are far, far higher. So I think that is probably the biggest mistake that underpins the mistakes that follow after that. Because without that clarity, we're going to find the wrong person, we're going to shortlist the wrong people. If we've got a dud shortlist, we've got no chance of finding the right person. I think beyond that, though, one of the other mistakes is not being curious enough in the recruitment process to really evaluate people properly, asking curious questions, digging deeper, you know, going further with your questions. And I think that's partly why that five-step framework episode that I just mentioned in the previous question is such a popular episode because I think as business owners who aren't necessarily recruitment experts, when we start to look at resumes and maybe we've got 300 resumes coming in, that's not an uncommon number right now, 
it can be overwhelming. And I know the tendency might be to read cover letters and think, oh, that person sounds really lovely or they've worked at this company and that's a great company. But we're not laser focused. We're not pulling out the unnecessary things and we're, we're not focusing on the actual core requirements of the role. So getting that framework right um, is really super helpful as well. So it's a roundabout answer for you, Susie, but I think ultimately it comes down to right person, right role, right time, and getting clarity about the right role at the outset before we even go to market is probably where most business owners stumble to begin with, and that then creates a cascade of possible problems and mistakes and errors that can happen after that point in time. So if you fix that part first, your chances of success are so much higher. Thanks for that question, Susie. That's a really, really awesome question. Now, I've got two more questions that have been pre-submitted and then I'm going to go to chat and answer the questions with, that we've had submitted from Dr. Massey and from Michelle as well. Um, so stay tuned for those. If you are joining live and have a question, please go ahead and pop it into chat because uh, I will be coming to those questions as well. Okay, so the next question I have is this. How do I support my staff to really step in and run their role within my practice? And really interestingly, I was listening to um, the audio book of um, 10X is easier or simpler than 2X this morning, uh, which is a great book. Um, I do love an audio book. Um, so if you haven't read that book, it's, it's a high recommendation from me. But interestingly, they were talking about this exact challenge about how business owners, we can tend to micromanage to the point that our team don't um, sort of take on the reins and how we can go about sort of getting them to really take ownership um, and responsibility and run their role, as you've said. So the first, I guess, aspect of this is building that culture of trust where people feel safe to make mistakes because when people on our team feel like they can't make mistakes because, you know, they're going to get in trouble or, you know, it's going to be an absolute diabolical consequence or any of those sorts of ramifications, they will hold back because they, they are so scared to make a mistake that they don't want to potentially take that risk of trying that new thing or taking ownership. So building that culture of trust where if we make a mistake, no problems, here's how we're going to deal with it. Bring it to my attention. We'll work on a solution together, you know, that there's not going to be huge consequences to making a mistake. I think it's really important. I think also as business owners, we're pretty good at delegating tasks. We tend to be less good at delegating responsibility and ultimate authority for something. And that can be tricky to do. Um, so that is something that we need to do more effectively. We need to delegate not only you're responsible for this task, you're responsible for the outcome, for any mistakes that happen along the way. You're responsible for the entire uh, piece of responsibility of the project. Now, sometimes that means we need to really get out of the way, which can be tricky. So sometimes what will happen here is the employee will come back to us and say, I've come across this problem or I've got to this point and I need your help. Our natural instinct is to say, no problems, let me help you with that, because that's what we want to do. We're problem solvers as business owners. We've got to stop doing that and we've got to push back and say, I see that problem, come back to me when you think you've got a solution and I'll happily listen to your solution and give you some advice on that. Get them coming back to you with solutions, not problems, helps them to take ownership over the entire process. So delegating the responsibility and walking away, they, if it bounces back to you, resisting that temptation to take that back on or to give them the solution having them have the solution in place. And, of course, having them engaged with the entire piece as well is really important, making sure it's something that they feel 
you know, that they want to take ownership of really helps with this process. And testing it all out by completely removing yourself from any component of it for a period of time. So pretend you're not there for a month when it comes to whatever you're trying to get them to take ownership of so that they can't come to you. So, you know, if you want it to take a month's holiday, for example, they, they're not going to be able to come to you during that time. So trial that in real time whilst you are still in the business. So, you know, that's yours for a month. Come back to me at the end of the month and let me know how that goes. Or give me the update on that, you know, at the end of the quarter. So removing yourself from the loop will stop them bouncing it back to you for sure. So they would be some strategies I would trial. Obviously, obviously, it's going to depend on the individual, their level of position in the business, um, and a whole range of other things. But they are often the, the sticking points. It's the trust factor, the delegating the whole responsibility, not just the task, and removing ourselves from the bounce back can really help uh, business owners sort of push that onto their team and getting their team to take ownership of that. Okay, I've got one more pre-submitted question and then I'm coming to Dr. Matthew and uh, Michelle's question and Tracy's chimed in. Tracy, great to see you here. Thanks for joining us. If you have questions, please pop them into chat or if you just want to join in the conversation, please do that as well. Okay, I've got an awesome question from Kirsty. Now, Kirsty, thank you for asking this question because I guarantee you, you are not the only one having this struggle or the only one that has had this struggle along the way. So Kirsty's given me some context. She's let me know that she's been an employee her entire life, drifting in and out of different jobs, never really found her career path, and now finds herself running their business. I think it might be you and your husband, Kirsty. I'm not 100% sure. I think it's a partnership. And you've been running the business for just over two years, and you are struggling with the transition between from being an employee to being an employer. And you feel like things are going over your head. You're not in control. How can you combat this? Such a great question. And I firstly want to share with you, most of us, when we start our businesses, don't have, I would say all of us, do not have all the answers, do not know all the things, are not experts in every part of running a business, and things do go over our heads and we can feel lost and isolated and like we're missing things. Being in business can actually be quite lonely a lot of the time because our friends and family don't really understand what we're going through and the, the challenges that we're facing. Um, and no one gets into business because they know everything about running a business. You usually get into business because you've got a passion that you want to follow. You're particularly good at something, so you go out on your own. Maybe you see an opportunity in the market and you purchase a business. But it's never usually because you are an expert in running every aspect of a business. So I guess first, firstly for you, Kirsty, just to give you some reassurance, you are absolutely not alone. I'm sure everyone watching this live stream has felt this way at some point or another in their business journey. So I've got a few uh, pieces of advice and some really definite suggestions for you. My first piece of advice is you do not have to know everything about running a business. You might want to surround yourself with others that do, but you don't need to know everything and you do not need to learn absolutely everything. You need to learn enough about everything to be dangerous and to be able to instruct your suppliers and engage the right people for sure, but you do not need to be an expert. And I remember learning this the hard way. I was about 
uh, maybe four, three or four years into running my business. Uh, I've had my business for 18 years now. Um, so I was about three or four years into running my business and um, we were really successful. We'd grown in profit year on year really successfully. We'd grown, I think I have a team of about five or six at this point in time. Um, so it's really, you know, I thought I needed to know sort of everything, uh, which is really challenging. Um, so I went and did a bookkeeping course because I thought I absolutely know, had to know how all the numbers worked. And I'm a numbers person, so it wasn't like it was totally foreign to me. But I had a team of five staff to manage. I had a very busy business to run. I was very pregnant, like I think I was six months pregnant when I started the course with my second child. It was the stupidest thing that I could have done. I did not need to do that course. I needed to engage a bookkeeper is what I needed to do. So you definitely don't have to be an expert on all the things. And Kirsty, I see that you are here live. Thank you for joining. And you've given me some context, husband and you and three other partners. Oh, that's a lot. Um, but they're not involved in the day-to-day. -day. Cool. So because um, having many, many different business partners can also be challenging because you've got lots of conflicting opinions about business decisions. But if it's just you and your husband running the day to day, that does make it a little bit simpler. Um, I think the key thing to Kirsty is to acknowledge that there are things you're going to be great at and you should stick to those. And there are things that aren't going to be your sweet spot. And it's totally OK to get support and hire around you for those. So I would definitely do that clean slate exercise that I just mentioned and figure out what your ideal role is in, in this business and really own that role. Because I think the tendency can often be, particularly if we're working with our partner, that we just, in fact, I had this very conversation with one of my Powerboss coaching clients yesterday. She said, I just feel like I'm constantly the um, the gap filler like she was just picking up all the bits and pieces that no one else was getting to or wanted to do or had the skills to do and she's as a result feeling totally overwhelmed and totally stretched which is natural and she's not doing the things that she's amazing at she's not doing the things that are moving the business forward and she's going to start to ultimately feel resentful no doubt about that so that can be the tendency that we just fill all the gaps I encourage you not to do that. I encourage you to design the role that you want to hold in this business and really lean into that. And that can sometimes be about getting to know yourself and your own unique skill sets, especially when throughout your entire life you've been an employee and bounced between different jobs. It's likely that you've never really stopped to think about what is my zone of genius? What am I naturally really good at? What's my unique style? And there are lots of assessments that you can do. So, for example, earlier I mentioned the DISC assessment that I work with um, lots of providers on. Charissa Lim is my preferred partner on DISC assessment reports. That's a great assessment to get to know your personality and communication style really well. And when you know that, you can actually own it and lean into it. You know, I present a lot of uh, workshops on teams working together and communication, and I use the DISC assessment a lot. Michelle knows this. We've done this with her team. And when I present it, I can own my disc style and it really helps to say, so if I'm talking too directly because I'm a direct talker, I let people sort of pull me up on that and say, look, I'm going to need some more context here or it's way too direct. So getting to know your style is really important. There's also Gallup's Strength Finder. That's another great assessment to do, which focuses more in on um, sort of your core working strength. And that might help to really unpack oh, that's what I really want to be doing in this business. That's where I really want to focus. So getting to know your strengths and your blind spots um, can be really, really important as well. I think a great sort of hack also can be every time you're feeling uncomfortable with something or like something's going over your head or 
it's just not sitting well with you, just start to make a list, start to make a note of things so that you know where to focus your attention if you're going to do some training or if you're going to listen to podcasts or read books on a topic so that you're not feeling overwhelmed and stretched about trying to learn all the things. You might even have a focus each month where you think, okay, this month I'm going to try and work through understanding social media a little better, understanding um, the finances, understanding team. You could have a focus each month just to help remove the overwhelm because the overwhelm can be just awful for all of us business owners. And the two key recommendations I really do have for you, Kirsty, are what role models have you got around you, who are you connecting with, and surrounding yourself with the right people. I mentioned earlier when I answered Susie's question that I'm a member of Her Business, uh, which is an organisation for women business owners who are growing businesses. I would sometimes feel very lost without that network of connections because that's full of other people who are experiencing similar experiences to me. So connecting in with those net, those types of networks, and there are lots of different ones out there that, um, that you know, you'll find your people and your tribe, but connecting with groups of other business owners, people that are in business that are experiencing similar things can make it feel less isolated, less alone, and gives you a sounding board of other people to say, hey, I'm stuck with this. Does anyone know anything about this? And you'll find there's groups of people that are absolutely ready to help and support in that way. Getting the right mentors, coaches, and consultants around you. Having the right mentors and coaches in my business is one of the best investments that I make all the time in my business because I need that sounding board. I need guidance and coaching in particular areas that I'm not very good at or don't know about or need to learn more about. So I absolutely would, you know, really recommend investing in the right coaches and mentors and the right programs and networks to be your support network and to help you when you're feeling like things are going over your head or you might be missing something. I mean, as an example, People Powered HR, which is our online subscription service, is there for exactly that reason. Like our Facebook group is constant with people saying, you know, asking questions. And, yes, I'm there to support as an expert, but the community is there to support because they've all been through similar experiences. So, Kirsty, I definitely recommend seeking out the right tribe for you, the right networks, the right mentors and coaches for you, um, and and really getting some support there. I think you'll find it really valuable um, and a, you get a huge return on investment. So know that you're not alone. Know that these are all normal sort of feelings of overwhelm, particularly when you've ended up in a business that maybe you didn't necessarily intend to. You're working with your husband, obviously. So um, so this is all totally normal, but there are resources. There's great books. There's great podcasts. There's great training available. Um, and it's just about deciding where you want to focus that. But there is support out there, and I just highly recommend um targeting into that that will really be helpful hopefully that's been a helpful answer for you Kirsty. okay i'm going to jump to the questions that we've had submitted live now now if anyone is live and wants to ask a question please go ahead and add it into chat so i'm going over straight over to linkedin where dr massey is joining us now coming up on the podcast in a few episodes time i have an awesome discussion with dr massey we've already recorded it it'll be coming to you live really soon um, definitely tune in for that it'll be in two or three episodes time and so the question is when should small businesses consider implementing health and well-being strategies and what strategies seem to stick best it's a great question because i think it's um well-being as a whole is really important um for all of us and in fact the next episode of the podcast is really going to be looking at as business owners looking after our own well-being so that we can support um, our teams as well 
And I think the great thing with wellbeing programs is they can look very different for every business and they don't have to be, have to be hugely expensive or time-consuming or costly because um, small businesses or, you know, maybe don't have a huge budget for that. So I think really understanding and knowing your people is key. We saw a phase of lots of businesses going, well, we need a wellbeing program, so we're going to give everyone a gym membership. That might be great for some of your team. Most of your team are never going to walk into that gym <laughs> because it's your gym, not their gym, because they don't like gyms, whatever the case is. So I think really having a targeted approach, knowing your team and knowing what's important to them is, is really critical. So when should small businesses consider it? I think a small business should be considering it at any time from startup onwards. I think as soon as you've got a team, considering well-being is an important aspect to be thinking about. So when should small businesses consider implementing them? Right from the outset. As soon as you've got a team, you should be thinking about how we can integrate a health and well-being strategy. Now, this could be as simple as having fruit available in an office, for example. It can be really that simple or it can be much more complex. Um, so an employee assistance program is a really popular option because it's very easy to engage a provider in that space. It's hands-off from the employer's perspective and obviously it provides uh, mental health support to employees and they can access that on a confidential basis. That can be a really, really easy strategy to go with as a starting point, very easy to implement, very easy to continue to, to run. Another great strategy is having someone on your team be the champion of any wellbeing programs that you're running. So it's not entirely your responsibility because as a business owner, you've got all the plates spinning. You've got so many things on your mind. It would be very easy for a well-intentioned wellbeing program to slip off the radar in terms of your priorities. So making someone else on the team the champion can be a great way to do it and maybe doing a quarterly strategy so that you're not trying to stick with one thing forever. So maybe this quarter we're sharing healthy recipes. Next quarter we're going to do some physical activity stuff together or we're going to do a, uh, a walking challenge or something like that. Next quarter we're focusing on emotional and mental well-being. So it can, it can really rotate to a range of things and it can be a little bit about trial and error to see what sticks with your particular team best, um, you know, knowing your people. So I think the strategies can be really, really varied but having a focus on it is important no matter what size of your team. I think an EAP is the simplest one that always is easy to stick to, but I do think it can go far beyond that and it doesn't need to be expensive or time-consuming. I know businesses that get like a masseuse in to come and do neck massages one afternoon a month and things like that. You can do, you can have some fun with it, but I think mixing it up is important because you'll always find that certain employees relate to and engage with certain aspects of well-being more than other aspects. So if you're varying it, then you, you're likely to sort of touch on each employee's particular sort of interest area rather than just going with physical well-being or mental well-being or psychological well-being as a blanket approach. So that would probably be my recommendation for small businesses. And thank you for asking that question, Massey. That's a really great question. Okay, we've got a question here from Michelle. Has a staff member who has a lot going on personally and insists on working when they are not well and doesn't perform well? <laughs> we've spoken to them about taking personal leave like sick leave, but they insist they are okay. Can we as employees, employers, I should say, insist that they take leave? Um, and Tracy said, great, great question. And it is a great question. 
<laughs> um, so thank you for asking. Look, this is all about those curious conversations and those open communication channels. Um, you know, yes, technically you can go down the path of saying you are not fit for work and, and determining that and and managing it that way. But I know that's not how you would prefer to manage, Michelle, and it's, it's probably not my hard recommendation either. So I think it's about creating some structure and parameters and getting the employee engaged in creating those because often when someone is having personal issues and it's affecting their work, they want to work because it's the only place they feel they are still in control and they don't want that control removed. So quite often they're going to be insistent on working, one, because they don't want to take their leave, maybe they've exhausted all their leave as well, but secondly because they're trying to maintain some element of routine and control when maybe everything else externally to work is a little chaotic and a little out of control and, and obviously they're having some challenges there. So I would be sitting with them and saying, look, we want you here when you're at your best. Let's talk about some strategies where we can help you to be working when you're at your best and to have some ways that you feel, you know, okay to take time off when you're not. And this could be around some flexible work arrangements. It could be about a reduction in hours. Um, but I would try and get them on board with a strategy in a way that they are engaged with it and on board with it um, and in a way that obviously is still going to work for the business. So some reverse style questioning can work really effectively here. So it can be a matter of having a conversation where you say, look, Put yourself in, in this person's situation, so maybe using a colleague as an example. If they were showing up like this, not finishing their work, not communicating with you, whatever the symptoms are that you're seeing, how would that make you feel in your role? Do you think it's fair on the rest of the team that this is what's happening? And you know the specifics to use, obviously. And they're probably a reasonable person, I'm imagining, if they're on your team, Michelle, so they're probably going to say that, no, it's probably not really fair. And then you come to an agreement that, okay, this really isn't fair on the rest of the team, the way this is happening, and asking them to come up with some solutions about how we can work around this. Okay, so we agree it's not fair that it's working how it's working. What are some options? What are some workarounds? What are some solutions? How can we better navigate this so that it is fair on everyone in the team and so that you still feel like you've got whatever is important to them. So touching on the how to make this work for you as well as that style of sort of flipping the question back onto them and asking them how they would feel if this was the situation that they were faced with, how they would react. Do they think it's fair? Would they be okay if the rest of the team were dropping the ball or whatever's happening? They're obviously not getting, maybe targets aren't being met um, and all of those kind of things. So I'll be look looking at having a curious conversation, getting to the bottom of why they're reluctant to take the sick leave that they've got access to um, and looking at what are some other solutions. And, you know, if it needs to get a little firmer, you can say, look, I don't want to be performance managing you because you're not, you know, you know you're not performing your best. I don't want to be performance managing you. Let's come up with a better solution than that. So we, we're really flexible. We're here to work with you. We're here to listen. How can we make this work better so that you're here when you're at your best and that you feel okay to not be here when you're not? Um, that would be the kind of questioning and strategy I would be going down to see if you can get them on board in a way that they're engaged with um, and a way that's going to still work for the business. But that kind of reverse questioning can really work very effectively in those meetings. Yeah, great. Excellent. Um, yeah, great. Thanks, Massey. That's, that's really great feedback. Now, 
any other final questions that you would like to contribute whilst we are here for our Ask Me Anything? Now, I'm curious for those that are here live and if you're listening to the audio on the podcast, do we want to continue with having regular Ask Me Anythings? I think these, uh, we've had such great questions that I think we might make these a semi-regular style of episode where maybe I'll pick one question that's been pre-submitted and ask them on the podcast uh, as part of our regular recording. So if you've got any last minute questions from those that are joining live, please pop them into chat. For those who have been here live, thank you so much for joining me. It's been super fun. Loving them. Okay, we're going to continue with the Ask Me Anything, so we'll keep those in the loop. Um, So for those that are here, thank you so much for joining me. If you are hearing this on the recording on the podcast, thank you for joining me on the journey to 200 episodes of the People Powered Business Podcast. It has been super fun and we really enjoy the feedback we get from the podcast and people reaching out and saying that they're listeners of the podcast. So do uh, continue to engage with us on the podcast. Thank you for joining. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to know that this is also a podcast for them. And I look forward to the next 200 episodes of the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining me for this special live stream episode. And we'll be back again next week with a brand new episode. Take care.